Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, which means to simply, which promises us that if we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He will instantly forgive us uh, and cleanse us of all sins and restore us to fellowship and we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can resume our spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to confess sins, to focus and get your mind on what we're doing this morning rather than what you're going to do this afternoon or last night or whatever else is going on in your life. Focus on the Word. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word, to fellowship together around the teaching of your word, and to have our souls refreshed by the absolute inerrant truth of your word. Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might uh, remember that it has been given to us, that we might learn to orient our thinking to reality, and that we are under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and as he teaches us, We're to respond with positive volition to see how these things apply to our own lives and our own thinking. Father, we also are mindful of our nation. At this time, we continue with our war against terrorism. We continue to pray for our president. We pray for those who are in leadership, both in terms of the military and uh, in civil government. We pray that you would give them wisdom and skill in being able to deal with this situation that we might come across the right information, the correct intelligence, be able to interpret it correctly, and that you would uh, keep us safe and secure from any more uh, attacks. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to strengthen this nation. We are in a time when this nation is in serious negative volition and in decline, and there is there are fewer and fewer people who believe in absolutes, who believe in your word, and as a result of that, this nation is on the verge of and could be on the verge of some serious divine discipline. So, Father, it is incumbent upon us as believers to study your word, to be strong in your word, that we might be prepared for whatever may come, and that we may be an example to those around us of the truth of your word and of the significance of doctrine in the soul. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, we're still looking at the first four verses, which deal with the doctrine of giving. Now, giving is part of the believer's spiritual life. At the instant of salvation, every believer is given 40 things from God the Father that are ours forever. Now, one of those is uh, revocable. That is, that's the filling of the Spirit. We can lose it in the sense that it is no longer operational in our life. We don't lose the Holy Spirit, but His dynamic influence in relation to our spiritual growth, is shut down when we're out of fellowship, when we're living according to the sin nature. But the instant we confess our sins, we're back in fellowship, and so that is activated again. But 39 of those 40 realities are ours forever. Now, in that package, we get two things that are somewhat related. The first is our ambassadorship. We are royal ambassadors, and this has to do with our ministry in the direction of other people, in the direction of mankind. Then we are also made priests. We are royal priests, and priests have to do with our ministry toward God. And as part of both our ambassadorship and our priesthood, we have spiritual service and Christian service. And spiritual service has to do with the operation of our spiritual gifts. It has to do with our ministry towards others in the body of Christ. And it has to also do with the function of evangelism. Now, what undergirds a lot of operations, both both Uh, in terms of ambassadorship and priesthood, has to do with this little issue called money. Because ministries operate on finances. And it doesn't matter whether you're involved in a small ministry or whether you're involved in an international ministry, whether you're involved in a local ministry or you're involved in foreign missions, It still operates on finances, and finances are crucial, finances are important. And we have a tendency among a lot of conservative churches to uh, run away from talking about money. And the reason is because we're reacting to the over-discussion of money by many groups. There are, as I pointed out last time, so many groups that talk about money all the time. You go to a lot of churches, and that's all they talk about, and they pass the plate. I've been in some churches where I've seen them pass the plate two or three times because they didn't get the amount they needed the first time or the second time. And, of course, you're never going to run the risk of being done for money around here because we just don't operate that way. But we have to have reality in our discussions about finances and the doctrine of giving and the responsibility for every believer because it's part of both our ambassadorship and our priesthood. It's part of our ambassadorship because as part of our royal ambassadorship, we're involved in witnessing. When you're involved in witnessing, you're either involved uh, directly, and that can be through personal evangelism, or you're involved indirectly, and that's through the support of missions. Now, traditionally, 
in churches, you talk about missions in, under two categories. Missions can be uh, domestic or foreign. Domestic missions would be the support of seminaries, the support of Bible colleges, the support of people who have particular ministries in terms of youth or teen evangelism, Christian camps, things of that nature that are that have a, an evangelistic thrust that are operational in this country. You could even extend that to some special apologetics-type ministries, such as the Institute for Creation Research and other things of that nature. So... As part of your ambassadorship, you're involved in witnessing. If you're directly involved in witnessing, that may not necessitate funds. But it may. You, we, you might want to use some tracks. You might want to use some booklets. And we supply tracks and booklets at no cost out on the track rack. Now, there is a cost involved in that. You know, some people think grace means there's no cost involved, that it's just free. No, it's free to you, just like salvation. See, this is the issue in grace. Grace doesn't mean salvation is free, period. It's important to note the punctuation. It's free to you. It's free to me. But somebody had to pay the price. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and there he paid the price for our sins. He paid the redemption price, the Scripture says. He paid the penalty for our sins. And so the prince, when you apply that, and that becomes a model, as we'll see in our study this morning, that becomes a pattern for grace giving. Grace giving doesn't mean it's free. Those books aren't free. It's not free to get them printed. It's not free to get tracts published. It's not free to order tracts and send them through the mail. Same thing applies to the tape ministry with Dean Bible Ministries. We provide the tapes at no charge. That doesn't mean they're free, period. There's a cost involved. There's a cost involved in getting the tapes. There's a cost involved in distribution. There's a cost involved in maintaining all the technical uh, machinery that's involved in duplicating tapes, involved in, in keeping up with the Internet. And all of these different aspects are all part of ministry. It's not free. But we provide it on the basis of grace that it's free to people. We don't ask for anything. It's uh, at, at no charge. But there is a responsibility there on the part of people that if they can, and to the degree they can, they need to support the local church ministry, and also support the tape ministry. Some folks are extremely generous because they have a tremendous vision for what doctrine can do. And so we are very blessed with the fact that there are folks who uh, give tremendous amounts both to the local church, and to the tape ministry, and that keeps these things going and get, makes it possible for us to continue to disseminate uh, doctrine throughout the world. And all of that is part of this indirect aspect of, of witnessing and evangelism and communication of the Word. And so the direct part may involve your use of these tools. Well, there's a cost involved. Indirectly, when you support local or, I mean, domestic or foreign missions, there's a cost involved. Those folks have to live. And it's always been a sad aspect of, I think, of, of Christianity that we just don't want to support uh, full-time professional Christian workers. And that includes pastors, staff. I've always had a heart for uh, a concern for folks who, who work for ministries who are in the uh, administrative side. 
the secretaries, the folks who work in the office, the folks that aren't out there on the front line who are doing all the, all the work. See, we like to support the missionary who comes home and says, well, I led thousand people to the Lord in a great crusade. I went here, I went there, I went to this other place, I, uh, or I spoke at uh, 20 or 30 different churches this last year, or different school groups, or whatever it may be, and we like to listen to those numbers. Uh, people do. I think that's a tremendous mistake we have in America. We like to emphasize uh, the quantity. But we like to emphasize the guy who's out there doing the work. But for, if, especially if you have a ministry of any size, you need some kind of secretarial and clerical help. And those folks need to be paid, if possible. You can't always get volunteer work. And so a lot of times when you look at mission organizations, they don't pay their, their secretarial help a lot. And I, I, I've always reacted to this notion that, well, it's a privilege for them to work for us. Well, no, they still have to pay the rent like everybody else, and they still have to pay their utility bills like every, their utility bills aren't any less than anybody else's. I remember the first time I heard this when I was, when I was in seminary, and I found out how much they paid entry-level faculty positions. I was appalled. Well, it's such an honor to teach here at Dallas Seminary. And I'm not picking on Dallas. I'm on, almost every seminary I've talked to that, that has, well, Dallas has, of course, had a reputation, but, but some others that aren't very large, they're just restrained by the lack of funds coming in. But I remember, and I've been involved with ministries, well, it's such a privilege to work here. Yeah, but the bills are the same. Groceries cost the same. So we ought to have in, in, in mission organization and churches a vision for being able to pay people a, a salary or an income that's equivalent to what they could get out in the marketplace. The problem is that, that you're, you're often limited just because the giving isn't there. And it's not possible, of course. There are certain things you're limited in size. For example, if you're a small church like Preston City Bible Church, you know, we're not going to be able to come up with the kind of giving unless we had some people who were extremely wealthy. We're not going to have the finances to hire a full-time secretary and pay a full-time secretary at a certain price or, or some other things simply because of the nature of the size. That's part of God's logistical grace. If God doesn't supply beyond a certain point, that's, that limitation is also part of God's will. And you just can't do some things because God hasn't provided the resources for it, and that's one of the ways that, that uh, the Lord guides and directs in our lives. And we have to accept those limitations as also part of God's supply and God's, uh, God's logistical grace. So we have uh, direct and indirect involvement as part of our ambassadorship. Directly, you utilize different uh, tools, tracks, tapes, things like that. Indirectly, there's the support of foreign missions. As priests to God, we also operate in the realm of giving because the object of all grace giving, as we're going to see, is towards God. This is our ministry to, to the Lord. When you are giving, you know, this is the hardest thing I've seen to get into people's heads. You know, when you're writing that check and you're signing your name on it and you work for that money, that $100, $200, $300, whatever it is, it's real easy for you to think that that's your money. 
It's real easy for us to slip into that thing. But it's not our money. I mean, the Lord can take it all away in an instant. And many of you know that. You've gone through times when everything's disappeared. And the Lord is teaching us that we're not the ones that are really in control of this. He is. And that every dollar I make, every dollar you make, is from the Lord. And in giving, we're giving back to the Lord from that which He has given to us. And that is part of uh, our operation is priest. That is part of our worship is priest. It's not my money. And what happens, you'll often hear people say this, and I, I think I heard this years ago. I was in a church, and, um, and it was going through a split at the time. And there were a large group of people were leaving, and I overheard one uh, elderly man say, I've been in this church for 40 years, and I've invested too much money here to leave. I've got to stay here and, and so I can have a say about how they spend my money. And I thought, it's not your money. Number one, it wasn't your money before you wrote the check, and after you gave to the church, it wasn't your money anymore. You don't have any say in it. And that's hard for some people because some folks will look at a ministry and they'll say, well, you know, I don't know why they're spending the money the way they are. Well, of course, every ministry, just like any business or anybody else, sometimes their priorities aren't going to be right. Sometimes their priorities aren't going to be your priorities. But unless there's malfeasance, unless there is clear wrongdoing in the way they're handling money, we don't have a right to come along and, and say, well, I'm not going to give to them because I think they ought to do this instead of that. Well, if both of them are clearly within the objective and mission of the organization, then you're supposed to, our, our attitude is to support that ministry and to support them, and, and it, you know they're following the leading of the Lord, and it's not for us to come along and second-guess or Monday morning quarterback how a ministry utilizes money. Now, if it enters into doctrinal areas or it enters into areas of fiscal responsibility, then that's something else again. And if you look at a ministry that you've been supporting and you begin to realize that there's fiscal irresponsibility or there are doctrinal problems with the ministry or there are ethical issues at stake, then you may decide, well, I'm not going to support that organization. It's not simply a matter of your preference or my preference as to how they spend the money and how the, how the organization operates. So giving is something that is re- related to both our ambassadorship and our priesthood. As part of our priesthood, it is we're giving to the Lord and we're giving to support the local church. As part of ambassadorship, Part of that giving relates to missions, both uh, uh, foreign and domestic. So giving is vitally related to our spiritual life, and it is part of our spiritual life. Now, the second thing that we, after, after discussing the ambassadorship and priesthood, another thing that we should, that I want to say about giving in relation to our spiritual life, it, it is not a, a means of spiritual growth. Giving isn't a means of spiritual growth. You'll often get this in lots of different um, churches and folks get the idea that giving is part of your uh, what you need to do to grow spiritually. And they classify that along with things like uh, prayer. Prayer, witnessing, evangelism, giving, 
operation of your spiritual gifts, spiritual service, work around the church, uh, teaching in uh, prep school or Sunday school. People say, if you do those things, oh, let's put a couple others in there, memorizing Scripture, reading your Bible. All these are things that people say, if, think are means to spiritual growth. But the Bible never utilizes that terminology. You know that? You don't grow by means of prayer. You don't grow by means of witnessing. You don't grow by means of giving. You don't grow by means of utilizing your spiritual gift. You grow by means of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We grow by means of the Holy Spirit. These are the mean statements. Uh, this is results. See, what happens, most people confuse uh, results with cause. And so they're out there, pastors are out there trying to jack everybody up to pray and to witness and to give more in spiritual gifts so that you can grow. No, you need to study the Word. You need to be in Bible class. You need to apply the Word. You need to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And as you grow spiritually within that framework of, of being, of walking by the Spirit and being in fellowship, then the result will be that you will pray more, you will get involved in witnessing, giving, using, utilizing your spiritual gift, uh, teaching, ministry, whatever it may be in the local church, memorizing Scripture and reading your Bible. And that's a product of growth, not the cause of growth. If you think it's a cause of growth, you're getting into legalism. But notice, the same person is going to do all of these things. You've got some folks who are doing all of these things, and everybody thinks, oh, they're so spiritual. No, they don't understand spiritual dynamics, so they're just doing that to grow. That's become legalism for them. And they're not going to grow at all. They're just going through all of the motions. But if, unless they're in fellowship and walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit, doing these things isn't, doesn't have any value whatsoever spiritually. But if you understand correct spiritual dynamics and you're walking by means of the Holy Spirit, and prayer is the result of your spiritual growth and evangelism and giving and all of these, then that counts for gold, silver, and precious stones. That's part of divine good, that is part of the fruit production in your spiritual life from God the Holy Spirit. And it, so in many ways you can say that a, a, an evaluation of these activities in your life gives you a barometer of your spiritual growth, unless, of course, you're in a legalistic environment, and, uh, and then it won't. But you see, that's the problem. You get, go, go down the street to uh, you know, the first legalistic church of uh, Connecticut, and they're going to be saying, do all these things, and all those people are doing all those things, but they don't understand the relationship with the Holy Spirit. So they can look and they say, oh, I'm reading my Bible through once a year, and I'm memorizing 50, 50 verses a year, and I'm giving a good uh, 10%, and every now and then I give 11% just to get an extra brownie point from God. I must be doing great spiritually. But they're not. They're, that's, that's legalism because it's putting the cart before the horse. You've got to put first things first, and first thing is you walk by the Holy Spirit and spiritual growth, and this is the result. Because as we grow spiritually, God is working in our life, changing the dynamics, changing our thinking as a result of learning what our priorities are supposed to be uh, scripturally. Then we begin to put that into application. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't shy away from talking about money. 
I want you to make sure you understand that in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that he is teaching them about how they are to give, and he is not shy about mentioning the fact that there are financial needs out there. See, this is part of this extreme that I've talked about last week and this week, that some folks are just so afraid to talk about money. In fact, I know of churches that won't even let their missionaries put statements in their missionary letters indicating what their plans and objectives are, what they would like to accomplish, what they need financially. If they need computer equipment, these are these are capital expenses in some cases. But they can't mention that in a in a in a uh, one of their monthly letters or anything because all people might think you're asking for money. Well, there's a lot of folks out there who if they knew that that ministry needed some computers would be glad to give, but because they have no clue that that ministry needs anything, they don't give anything. There's nothing wrong with stating financial needs in the proper way. Once again, it boils down to how it's done, not whether or not it's done. And Paul doesn't shy away from that. First Corinthians 16, he says in the first verse, Now concerning the collection for the saints... And this has to do, as I pointed out last time, with the fact that there were problems back in Jerusalem and in Judea because they'd gone through a famine. And the believers in Jerusalem particularly had problems as a result of the fact that they were now, they were, they were almost all Jews and they were ostracized from the Jewish business community because they had become believers. And on top of that, there was a famine in uh, Judea in the 40s. In that decade, period of the 40s, because of the fact that God was warning them through the fourth cycle of discipline about the dangers of the fifth cycle of discipline, which, of course, they didn't respond to, and they went out under, under divine discipline in 70 A.D. So Paul has clearly said, look, there's a need. <gasps> Golly, he talked about money. He said there's a financial need, and it's part of our responsibility. It's part of grace orientation and genuine Christian compassion and concern for other believers to help alleviate this situation. And Paul offers some wise advice here in the sense that he says, don't wait till I come and then we'll take up a collection, but lay some aside every week. On the first day of the week, verse 2, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. And so we learn a couple of things from this. Number one, we learn that it's not necessarily wrong to talk about what financial needs might be. Number two, we learn that giving should be on a regular basis. And uh, it's not necessarily weekly, but if that's uh, how you want to apply this, that's fine. But in their, that context, weekly probably related to what they made on a weekly basis and that they got paid or, or they earned their money each week. And so that was the period of time that Paul used for a basis for, for setting aside to give uh, in relation to, to uh, this particular situation and that they should give each week on Sunday. But he also indicates that the basis for giving is not a set amount or a set percentage, but storing up as he may prosper. In other words, everybody's a little different. Some people have greater demands. Some people have lesser demands. 
Some people who may, who may uh, be blessed financially with more income can, can give 15, 20, 25 percent. Others who may be on a rigorous fixed income may decide that all they can do responsibly is give about 3 or 4 percent. Uh, of course, you have to take into account the uh, story in the Gospels with the widow's might. But, see, that came from her own desire. That wasn't a mandate to give 50% of what she had. That came from her own spiritual life. And so percentage isn't the issue. The issue is what's going on, as we'll see, what's going on in your soul, your own spiritual life, and the issue of of, uh, proportional giving as the Lord prospers you. Let there be no collections when I come. Now, there's part of part of this is wise. Paul knows that in nine months, let's say there's in nine months you've got 36, probably 38 Sundays, and in, over that period of time, if people set aside a certain amount every Sunday, then the total aggregate of their giving nine months later is going to be a lot more than he would get in a one-shot uh, offering. So there's wisdom there that we need to save, we need to plan for the future, we need to have long-range goals. And that's true for a church like Preston City Bible Church, it's true for ministries, it's true for missions, that just because they have an annual uh, expense of, let's, let's say, uh, $150,000, just to pull a number out of the air, doesn't mean that if they're taking in 200000 a year, that there's something wrong. Say, well, I'm not going to give so much, they don't need it. No, they need to be, every ministry needs to be laying up something for the future because eventually you have capital expenses that come along that you need to take care of. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when you get into a mentality that, well, the Lord gave us an extra 50000 this year. Let's not spend any of it because He might not give us any money next year. See, I've seen churches get into that trap. They have extra money. They lock it away somewhere, and they don't ever touch it. And they hear about needs of people in the congregation. They hear about particular needs among missionaries, but they don't te- they don't get into that nest egg. They're not af- they're they're afraid to do that. Now, if you've got something that you see down the road, like we do with a building program, where eventually we're going to need to build a new building, and you want to save for that purpose, that's one thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just the idea that you're, you, you end up moving from being grace-oriented to just being tight, just being miserly. And I've seen churches get that way. I've seen churches that think they're grace-oriented get that way. And they're afraid to give because, oh, something may come up next year and the Lord might not provide. And it's just a, uh, a, a real blasphemy against the grace of God, and it's, a, it's its own little twisted version of legalism. Now, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as you may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, obviously, when he says that there be no collections when I come, he's not talking about regular giving. He's talking about collections here in the context of taking up a special offering for the believers in Jerusalem. Obviously, there are ongoing regular bills that a local congregation has, and they need to they need to have weekly giving, take, uh, offering. We don't have offering here. We just have boxes in the back for, your, for gifts and offerings. But uh, some folks take up an offering every week. 
And so then Paul says in verses 3 and 4, When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. And we saw last time that the principle there is that Paul's not involved with the money. And those who are involved in ministry should not be involved uh, with the money. I've seen uh, a lot of abuse of this where you have pastors who sign the checks, pastors uh, get involved with the banking. I don't have anything to do with that. Nobody should. No pastor should. Ministry should be completely separate. As soon as pastors get to know who the givers are, then they have a problem with with how they relate to them, and they lose their objectivity. And if you've got somebody who's a heavy giver and you need to uh, teach the Word in some area of their, that's going, that you know is a hard application or, or is going to be tough for them, and if you know that it may affect their giving, they might get mad at you, well, you may just pull your punches. And so uh, you should not know who the giving is coming from. You know, another thing I want to say about giving is that it's a spiritual gift. And there are a lot, there are a lot of folks who have the spiritual gift of giving. But there are folks who don't have the spiritual gift of giving. But notice, Paul doesn't come in here and when he talk, talks about this, make that point. Because every believer is responsible to give, just as every believer is responsible to witness. And, uh, and it's not dependent upon having a spiritual gift. Now let's look at some basic principles on the doctrine of giving. Basic principles on the doctrine of giving, and I've got 12 points. 12 points on the doctrine of giving. First point, giving is an expression of the royal family honor code that is grounded in grace. Giving is an expression of the royal family honor code that's grounded in grace. Everything about your life and my life in the church age needs to be uh, governed by the principle of grace. Now, let's make sure we understand what grace is. Grace is an attitude of benevolence and generosity. Grace is going the extra mile. Grace is not having necessarily an attitude of judgment that is a negative attitude towards people. Sometimes there are folks who have really messed up and made a mess of their life, and they've made bad decisions, and they'll continue to make bad decisions. And guess what? God's love for them isn't measured by their failures. And these are folks that, um, that we need to have some compassion for and to help. That doesn't mean that you necessarily ignore or validate their irresponsibility. But that's part of impersonal love. You don't give and say, okay, I'm going to help you, but you've got to straighten everything out. Now, in some cases, you may say, if there's somebody in the church who just made a series of bad decisions, say, well, we'll be glad to help you out, but, you know, we want to really help you. And the long-term issue is that you need to learn some basic principles of money management. You need to learn some basic principles of of and uh, related to your work ethic or whatever it is. In other words, you're not saying, not necessarily coming in with this attitude of of uh, we're going to help you, but you need to you need to straighten out your spiritual life or or that. There's not that kind of an exception there. But what you are saying is we want to address the larger problem and not just throw money at a at a at a smaller problem. But then if they don't respond, you don't come back and say, well, we want our money back. See, that would be conditional love. And that is not the basis of, the, of grace in the operation of impersonal love 
as part of the royal family of God. On the other hand, we have to recognize grace doesn't validate irresponsibility. See, God's grace towards us doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, uh, validate irresponsibility and licentiousness. It happens, doesn't it? We're all guilty of abusing the grace of God. And there are going to be folks that we may decide to help financially, and they may abuse our grace. Well, gee, that's not the issue, is it? The issue is to be gracious and generous. And Paul praises the a couple of different groups of Christians in Romans 15:26 because of their grace orientation. And he, he states, Therefore it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Now in that epistle, he was addressing the believers in Romans. And he uses the Corinthians. See, they're down in Achaia. He also uses the Philippians, whom he also praises in Philippians chapter 4 because of their grace giving. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 or 8, when we were talking about doubtful things, and Paul made the point that when he was in Corinth, he never mentioned giving and he didn't take a salary. Not that that was... That Not that that was the ideal, not that he was saying there was something wrong with it, but he knew that this money thing was a real problem for the Corinthians. So he did not want to create any red herrings across the path of evangelism, so he decided to work in Corinth. But he didn't work everywhere. See, Paul was flexible, and he understood that you don't, that, that under the principle of grace, there's flexibility. So in some places he took a salary, in other places he didn't take a salary. But he only worked in Corinth until Timothy uh, and Silas arrived, and they had a financial gift from the churches up in Philippi and in the northern part of Greece, which is the reason called uh, Macedonia. They pronounce it Macedonia, and uh, we call it Macedonia. But that is... The, the, the church where Paul first landed, he landed in Neapolis, then he went to uh, Philippi, then he went to um, Berea, which they pronounce Varia, and he went to um, those cities in, in uh, Macedonia. And they took up collection, and they sent money down to, the, uh, down to Paul in Corinth in order to support him. And when that financial aid came, he then quit his tent-making business, and he wasn't supported by the local congregation in Corinth at all. But where was he, who was he supported by? He was supported by the congregations up north. So he was operating more like a, like a missionary. But it, that doesn't mean that, that uh, he was telling the Corinthians that they should never do that. He just blasted them back in 1 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9 for, for not applying the principles of giving. They didn't understand it. So they were acting in a very selfish manner in relationship to their money. And Paul said, until you grow up and become uh, grace-oriented about it, I'm not going to create a, a secondary issue. So this was the issue, was taking care of the believers in Jerusalem. And Paul praises them because of their contributions to take care of the poor in Jerusalem. So giving is part of grace orientation, part of the royal family honor code. Second point, giving is an expression of mental attitude in every area of life. It's an expression of our mental attitude in every area of life. Giving isn't just a, has to do with money. Giving and generosity has to do with everything in life. Giving time, 
giving our uh, efforts, our talents, using everything that God has given us for the local church and for ministry. Giving is part of the, the lifestyle of the believer. It's, grace orientation isn't something that relates only to money. But as your grace orientation in your soul, as grace orientation is developed in your soul, then it will also impact your pocketbook. Uh, I remember one uh, sermon I heard when I was uh, in seminary. I always remember the title. It said, uh, Faith that is heaven high is pocket deep. You know, that's one of those catchy little phrases some pastors are good at coming up with. That's true. And it emphasizes the principle that as you grow and mature and your orientation is to heaven, occupation with Christ, then that's going to impact your pocketbook. It's going to impact how you spend your money. And it's going to impact your, your investment in relation to eternity. This is what happened to the Corinthians. I want you to, change, to, to, to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9... It's a lengthy discussion on the doctrine of giving. And I don't have time, and I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse exegesis of these two chapters, but I want to hit some high points here to bring out some principles. Paul states in the first verse of chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. See, they're in Achaia, so he is only going to cite the example of the Macedonians. When he's writing to the Romans, he'll use the Corinthians also as an example, which shows us that they did respond positively to their correction, and they also responded positively to what Paul taught on grace giving. In verse 2, he says about the Macedonians that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, that is, they're sharing the happiness with, with Christ, sharing the happiness of God, their uh, spiritual maturity, and he says, and their deep poverty. So that first phrase, the affliction, uh, says that in a great trial of affliction, that has to do with their external circumstances. The abundance of their joy, that's their spiritual life focused on uh, eternal realities and their spiritual maturity. And their deep poverty, that relates to their actual physical uh, financial circumstance. They didn't have a lot of money. These were folks who were, who were living below the poverty line. Yet, Paul says that because of their spiritual maturity, they didn't let their actual financial circumstance limit their giving. They abounded in the riches of their libera- liberality. So the point here is that their giving is an expression of their spiritual life and it affected every area of life. It wasn't just in giving, but their abundance of their joy would affect every area of life. And their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And this is another point about giving, is it's generous. See, the Old Testament says, you had two, as we studied last time, you had two types of giving. You had mandatory giving, which was 10% on two different tithes, and another tithe taken up every third year, so that ended up being about a... 23 and a third, or about 23 percent giving that was mandatory. That was tax-related, something simpler to our income tax for support of the federal government. Then on the other hand, they had free will offerings that were taken. That's comparable to grace giving 
in the church age. And the principle is generosity. It's as God has prospered you. This is the test. How are you going to respond? It's not giving you a set figure. See, a lot of folks just say, well, tell me how much and I'll do it. That's the, the test is, no, how, how do you measure what God's grace has done in your life? And how is that going to affect your giving? See, that's what the test is all about. The test is not, can you give a set percentage every month? The test is, how real is the grace of God in your life and your response to that? And that indicates spiritual growth in order to respond correctly to that. So giving is an expression of that grace mental attitude in every circumstance of your life. And the uh, coordinate principle that goes with that is that giving is generous. Third principle, giving is an expression of your individual volition, not the result of guilt manipulation gimmicks, or other forms of coercion. Giving is an expression of your volition. It's up to you. It's not the pastor's job to emotionally move you to give, to put you in a position where you feel guilty, to talk about all the problems and everything that could be accomplished if you would just give more, and then to put some kind of pressure on people. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, we read, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they uh, were freely willing. They gave of their own will above their ability. They were generous beyond anyone's expectation. And it had nothing to do with how little they actually had. But it had to do with how much they how grateful they were to the grace of God. Fourth point. Giving must first be related to your attitude towards the Lord before giving must first be related to your attitude towards the Lord before it focuses on people. It's oriented to the Lord, not to other people. The issue isn't people, the issue is what the Lord has done in your life. And if the Lord, if you're not occupied with Christ, and if you have not understood the grace of God in your life, then you're going to miss the boat. Let's skip down to verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. See, the focus is not on the people, not on the ministry, not on the local church. The issue is your relationship to God. Get that straight. Everything else is going to flow from that. And the first issue is your attitude towards the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8.5 Fifth point. Giving depends on consistent spiritual growth, consistent learning and application of the Word of God. Verse, I'll read verse 6 just to keep the context going. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So as they grow, that is in faith and knowledge, and both indicate spiritual growth, see that you abound in this also. So Giving is related to their spiritual growth, which means consistently taking in the Word of God and applying it. 
Point number six. The pattern or motive for forgiving is based on the, the pattern in, during the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ set the pattern, sets the motive for giving. It is the work of Christ on the cross that gives us the principle, the pattern, the framework for understanding grace. And this is in verse 9. Notice Paul says in verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. In other words, there's not a mandate to give a set amount. It is a test to see the quality here, the quality of spiritual, of our spiritual growth, our love for the Lord. For the explanation is given in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Here's the pattern. Jesus Christ had everything, yet he was willing to give it all up. That's the process of the kenosis, to be willing to limit the use of his divine attributes in order to go through the process of incarnation, to go through the physical limitations on earth, the physical suffering on earth, to go through that process of temptation in his humanity and have to rely exclusively on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to set the pattern for us and then to go to the cross where he, where he was punished for our sins, where he bore the judgment of our sins uh, during those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. See, his focus wasn't on what I can do with what I have. His emphasis was what I can do for others, for man, in terms of paying that penalty. That we, through his poverty, might become rich. See, the rich there isn't talking about money in either case. It's talking about the general principle of giving that you have an abundance of something, and yet you give it, give it away. You use it for others. And the result was, in Christ's case for us, that through his poverty, we become rich spiritually. We have all of our assets because of all that he did for us on the cross. So that becomes the pattern for giving. It is generosity. He didn't give some, he gave all. So that becomes a pattern for grace. It has to do with generosity. It is unconditional. So point number seven, then, we realize that giving is first a mental attitude and second an overt act. It is first a mental attitude, the result of our spiritual growth, and second an overt act. If you don't have the mental attitude right, then you're going to fall apart on the overt act. Verse, uh, skip down to verse 12. Paul says, for if there is first a willing mind, that is your mentality, your volition, is positive towards God and response to His grace. If there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. Uh, The willingness is an issue. Some people don't have much to give. God has not chosen to give you uh, the excess you think that you would like to have. I mean, some folks will say that if I had... 
an extra $20,000, I know where I would give it. And maybe they really would. Maybe they're, that's actually true. If you had an extra 20000 you would give it to some mission. You'd give it to the local church. And if, if that is done in the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, the, I think the Lord honors that volition. It's a true desire. Sometimes the Lord knows that you have that desire, and He says, I'm not going to give you to 20000 because if you had it, you would give it to this ministry. And i got a test for this ministry, and it includes not having those resources. So I'm not going to bless you or prosper you financially because I know exactly what you'll do with it, and I don't want that to happen. So in some cases, the Lord honors our desire even when He has not provided the resources to fulfill that desire. That doesn't mean that you can rationalize and say, well, I just don't have it, so I won't give, and God's still going to bless me. Because remember, the Lord's the one who searches our, heart, our minds and hearts. But it begins with our volition. Giving is, first of all, a mental attitude related to your volition. Second, it's a mental act. I mean, second, it's an overt act. 2 Corinthians 8.12. Point number eight. Giving is related to the motivation from the doctrine that is in your soul. It is related to motivation that comes from the doctrine that is in your soul. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Skip over to verse the next chapter, verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. That is, in his As each one gives as he purposes in his heart, and that is the seat of your thinking. So you're going to evaluate your budget. You're going to evaluate how the Lord has blessed you. You're going to take a look at, at what the needs are that you're familiar with, and you're going to say, okay, how am I going to apply all these principles? And then I'm going to determine to give a certain amount and to give that on a regular basis. But see, he doesn't say, so let each one give 10%. Or so let each one give 20%. Once again, there is no set amount. Tithing is not for the church age. If you believe in tithing for the church age, you do not believe in a distinction between Israel and the church because tithing is applying a, an, a commandment to Israel to the church. And that is inconsistent. I pointed out last time that tithing is never mandated uh, before the Mosaic Law. We know that Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils that he uh, took when he defeated the enemies, the the, uh, four kings of the east. When he defeated them, he gave 10% to Melchizedek. Why did he give 10%? It wasn't mandated. That's just his free will choice. And that example is is, uh, described and used in the New Testament in Hebrews, but it's not, again, tithing isn't mandated. So the issue isn't tithing. The issue is your motivation and generosity. Point number nine. God in His grace supplies both the motivation and the resources for giving. God in His grace supplies both the motivation, that comes from the doctrine in your soul, and for the resources for grace giving. Uh, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, 
that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Notice in verse, I want to go back to one thing, when it says, God loves a cheerful uh, giver. That word translated cheerful is the Greek word hilaros, which comes over into English eventually as hilarity. It doesn't mean hilarity. It has to do with a, a positive, joyful mental attitude. There's somebody who's very pleased with the privilege they have to give. They're just glad to be able to give. And that's the idea here, is that, that God is looking on that mental attitude, that it's not grudging. It's not, well, this is what I have to do, but I'm excited about what I'm doing. Now let's go to verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is going to supply our financial resources and is going to take care of us and give us the resources we need to give. And whatever resources we have, that's the basis for our giving. That's part of our uh, Christian service. Uh, Then the next point, verse 10, this is part of our spiritual production. Giving is part of our spiritual production. Verse 10, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, recognizing that God's the one who gives you all your abilities, gives you your ability to work. He's the one who supplied your talents, and he's the one who supplied your job, and he's the one who enables that that, uh, business to prosper and to pay you an income. He is the one who supplies all of that, and uh, the verse goes on to say, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiplies the seed you have you have sown, and increases the fruits of your righteousness. That's the production of your spiritual growth. So God is the one who is ultimately producing this in your life through the Holy Spirit, and so it becomes part of, of your uh, spiritual life and spiritual growth. Point number 11, when you have developed a grace-oriented mental attitude, it will result in generous giving. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 9, 11, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, that should be translated generosity, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. See, giving is related to grace. Grace is related to gratitude. And gratitude is related to thanksgiving. As you have a grateful, thankful attitude for all that you have, it results in generosity because you recognize that it's not from you, but it is all from God. And then verse 12, giving uh, then is a result of spiritual growth as all Christian service is a result of spiritual growth. Verse 12, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. It is part of the angelic conflict, part of your witness to others and your uh, witness among the angels as to what God is doing. This is why he says in verse 13, while through the proof of this ministry, see, it is outward evidence of our spiritual spiritual life. Through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession, that is, your acknowledgement of the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. See, that generosity is a demonstration of the validity of the ministry in their life, that they are growing and maturing. So the Corinthians obviously responded well 
to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and it impacted their giving. Next time we'll come back and we'll come close to finishing our study in 1 Corinthians as we look at the closing comments in uh, chapter 16 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, for this opportunity to understand the importance and the role of giving as part of our, as a result of our spiritual growth and part of our spiritual service, part of our ambassadorship, part of our priesthood. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their spiritual growth, that they'll recognize that the issue for them isn't giving, the issue is receiving. The issue for them is to be on the receiving end of your grace gift of salvation. Scripture says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a free gift. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It is a matter of simply accepting for yourself what someone else did for you. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin on the cross so that you don't have to do anything. It's not a matter of moral reformation, changing the life. It's not a matter of uh, uh, bargaining with God. It's not a matter of joining a particular church. It is simply a matter of trusting in Christ alone for salvation, believing that He died on the cross for your sins. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with our understanding of grace from our study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.